1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We pick up in our series studying counter-cultural Christianity. That's the topic of our study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, before we do that, I have a couple of pictures I'd like to show you this morning. Um, any of you heard of Mount Everest before, right? You've heard of Mount Everest. Some, not all of you may know exactly how tall it is. 29,000 and some feet. I think it's 29,029 feet in elevation. It's not a hill. It truly is a mountain, right? It's in Nepal, and it has been... Uh, there have been people and there continue to be people that try to trek and climb to the top of Mount Everest often throughout time and even up until now continuously today. But on uh, May 29th, 1953, you see another image here, um, way back in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa guide began to trek the mountain, and they were reported as reaching the summit, the very peak of the mountain. Uh, the Sherpa guide, Edmund's guide, his name was Tenzing Norgay. You may have heard of these individuals. I think there's even um, several books written about the account of them climbing this mountain and reaching the top of it. You can see uh, maybe another photo here. They're climbing and trekking. It's very treacherous, as you can imagine. They use, have to use alti altitude um, um, uh, uh, oxygen to help and assist them in their, uh, because of the limited oxygen, the altitudes they reach. It's very cold, as you can see and imagine. Um, it's uh, through using ice axe and climbing and ropes. And there have been quite a number of people that have lost their lives trying to trek this mountain. In fact, even trekking this together was, was something that was done with, with a great amount of team, a lot of effort, and working together. When these two men, as long as others are with them, reached the top of the mountain, you'll see, I think, another picture here on the top. Who do you think is standing here at the top? It wasn't Sir Edmund Hillary that was at the top here in this picture. The individual in this picture is said to be his Sherpa guide, only the guide that was there to help them reach the top. And there's a picture of them holding his ice axe with the multiple flags, I think four different flags attached to the flag, is, uh, attached to his axe at the top of the mountain. This photograph came about because, as, as Edmund Hillary and uh, the Sherpa guide here, Tenzing Norgay, reached the top and were celebrating together, um, the, uh, the Sherpa guy did a little bit of uh, pagan ritual to thank the gods for climbing to the top of the mountain. And, and Edmund was rejoicing. They were, they were jumping up and down as, as much as they could. They had limited oxygen. They could only stay there so long before it had to climb back down. And because the Sherpa guy had no idea how to operate Hillary's camera, Edmund Hillary took a picture of the Sherpa guide standing there on top of the summit. Not together, but the guide standing on top. Now, this created all sorts of intrigue because later on now, journalists and people that were interviewing them afterwards began to ask questions. They wanted to know who reached the top of Everest first. Who is it that is to be praised for getting to the very top first? Well, the answer was reported by a man named John Hunt, who was the expedition leader and coordinator for this expedition to the top of Mount Everest. And he replied to the journalists in their, in their questioning and badgering them for who reached the top. He said this, and I quote, They reached it 
together as a team. That was his answer. You see, they were united by a common goal. These men and others, in a united effort, leaned on each other, worked together in order to reach the top, and when they reached the top, it is reported that the concern was not who was there first, but the team made it there together. What an incredible example. Thank you for the pictures this morning. The united by common goal effort as illustrated in this secular account. Neither was concerned who should receive the credit. Instead, the statement is given that the credit was given to the united effort of the group together, the team. You know, it is, it is counterproductive to try to determine who deserves the most credit when something is done well. When we try to, as a team or a body of Christ, try to find out who exactly is to receive the credit, who is the one to be the face of, claim, of fame in something, of success, it works to be counterproductive in God's plan of God receiving the glory through using his humble servants, you and me, his church. The church of Corinth was divided. We've been talking about that at great length for weeks now. You see that looking back over chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, and into chapter 3. In fact, all the way up through chapter 4, Paul continues to go back and talk about the division in the, amongst the church there in Corinth. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, still others followed Peter. Some said they didn't need to follow anybody but Christ. They, were, they worked to be divided because of the pride that ingrained them and the, the society of culture that they had taken upon themselves to think secularly worldly in the ways of Christ. And so Paul instructed them, as we see in 1 Corinthians back, in, or we're going to see in our text in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. He reminded them that they were, listen, laborers together with God. This is what the Apostle Paul is reminding them. And as it is God that gives the increase to ministry. It is God that gives the increase in the ministry as we willingly serve him. So our concern about who deserves the credit is rooted in, listen to this, the concern about who receives credit is rooted in carnality. Thinking carnally, thinking worldly, fleshly is what Seeking to see who receives the praise is rooted in. And thinking that way, thinking carnally, only works to rob God of the honor and the glory that we've been singing about this morning that He and He alone deserves. So, this morning, I encourage you, before we go to prayer, God wants His church to reject carnality and seek to revive concord. There's my C word. What is concord? Harmony. United effort. Agreement. Unity together. Father, as we study the word this morning, as we go into the text this morning, I thank you for the privilege to be able to see the scriptures that are relevant for today without us having to make them relevant. 
They are descriptive of the temptations that we have as a church and as Christians. Lord, we need to be submissive to you. We need to put to death pride in our lives. We need to seek to be united scripturally in our endeavors and efforts of ultimately seeing you glorified and furthering the kingdom. Lord, thank you for these tools that you've equipped us with and help us to identify how similar we can be to the things that Paul is writing about here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's firstly look at two points this morning. We'll look at the passage in two chunks this morning, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you want to look there. In verses 1 through 3, we see a number of things. What we're going to see here is Paul begins to flesh out and identify for us the root cause for the division that he has been talking about. So he's been labeling, you're divided here, you're doing this, and that's division, and you're thinking this way, and you're acting this way. But now he really gets down to the root cause of why they're so divided. Here it is in verses 1 through 3. We see this. The root cause for division is carnality and immaturity. Those two things. Carnality, thinking carnally, fleshly of the world, not spiritually, and being immature in the faith. These are the root causes. So we see this. In chapter 3, Paul identifies these root causes of division. Paul had to talk with them as if they were babes in Christ. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He's calling them a bunch of babies. He's trying to stress the point that they were so immature in the faith that he couldn't even speak to them and preach to them and write to them in the rich depth of theology and teaching of God's Word that they needed because they were so immature in the faith that they would not have been able to understand what he was sharing with them. There's a great deal of learning and unlearning as we go in Christ, isn't there? As we mature in the faith and our journey in life as Christians, as we come to know more about the Bible, as we study it, as we learn it through experience and through trials and through difficulties, as we grow, we realize there's things we got to continually keep learning. There's things that, that, that uh, we, we have to, to put away from us and, and erase from our practice and unlearn in our old fleshly habits as we grow in Christ. In fact, our growing, in mature, our, our, our growing and maturity in Christ hinges upon whether or not we are willing to hear and to obey the will of God. You realize that? If you think there's a way this morning, let me just be very clear and very blunt with you in a loving way. If you think there is a way to circumvent God's pattern for spiritual growth, fast track in another way, or use other tools to increase your faith in Christ other than what God has provided through his word, you are sadly mistaken. It is through God's word and time in it and sitting under the teaching and the preaching of it that we grow and, we, and, and we, as we not only hear it, but as we obey what God has given us, we begin to grow or to conform to the things that God reveals in his word for us. You know, when you picture this morning, you plant a, 
a small new plant. Let's think like farmers this morning or gardeners. And we plant something, just that little seed, and it begins to grow up and push up through that topsoil. Isn't that fun to see, right? And, and, you, and you begin to water it, and it grows a little bit bigger. But if you're outside in a garden area, there are other things that compete and grow up next to it, aren't there? There are other weeds, and you begin to pull those weeds out and pull around it and everything. But you, you don't get out the shears and start hacking off things on a little tiny plant yet, don't you? You, you wait till it gets a little bit bigger. You, you, when it's little, when it's immature, you just kind of give it some space and some room, and you're not poking and prodding and clipping and pulling and pruning on it quite yet. You don't even really stake it up against something else or anything else until it gets a little bit larger. But as it grows and it gets a little bit bigger, then comes some pruning. Then comes some, some, some taking off the dead branches and, and staking it out so it remains strong. This is kind of the thinking that Paul is using here. He's, he's talking to these believers in Corinth, and he says, you're so immature in the faith. You know, up till now, I've been, I've been, I've been ministering to you by, by feeding you spiritual milk as opposed to T-bone steak. You haven't been able to handle these things yet, but, but then in this text we see that he's starting to get a little bit more pointed. He's beginning to exhort them and to rebuke them and to correct them, saying it's time to grow up. It's time to, to mature in the faith. You need to step it up a little bit here in order to grow and, and to be healthy. And so in a similar way, there comes a time in a Christian life like we see kind of in a, in a, in a young plant that we're growing. In a similar way, in a Christian's life, there comes a time when, when some form of correction or pruning needs to take place more than it had been before in order for healthy growing. And it is by this pruning, by this um, um, correction kind of process that Paul is speaking of to the believers in Corinth. Verse 1 tells us the Corinthians' understanding of spiritual things had been hindered because of their spiritual immaturity. That's, that's a... That's a sad thing. You can, you, can, you can even pick up on in a reading, maybe I would boldly dare say the, the, the frustration in the Apostle Paul of a church that he had planted, a church that he had been and been part of and helped years prior, and now he hears back from them that you're acting like babes again. You're, you're acting immature in the faith. You're, you're allowing pride and worldly thing to, things to creep into the church and allow divisions amongst the church, and you're losing focus of the united effort of glorifying God together as one body. Grow up, he's saying. To explain his point further, Paul contrasted two types of Christians. I want to be very clear this morning. Listen, listen very carefully this morning because this is, this is an area of Scripture that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And I think it is, when, when interpreted correctly, which is not difficult to do when you consider the context and the regular grammatical flow of the text and the idea that Paul is, is writing so far here, he talks about, as well as comparing other scripture, I'm going to show you this as well. Paul explains his point by contrasting his two things. Would you turn over to Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment here? Galatians chapter 5. We're gonna, this is the passage that speaks of the, uh, uh, the fruits of the Spirit, right? And it, as you go over there, you're going to see that Paul 
is, this is yet another way to explain what Paul is talking about here, but Paul is working in the text to explain these two types of Christians. This isn't a believer and an unbeliever, but these are two different types of Christians that he's speaking of. Christians that have two different ways of living, two different maturity levels. The first is that of a spiritual that he speaks of. So Christians who were mature in the faith would fit in the category of what Paul is talking about, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, of the spiritual. Those who are those, that is those who are mature in the faith. They, they were controlled by, they yielded to, that means give way to the leading of or to another, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what the spiritual were that the Apostle Paul was speaking of. Those who were mature in the faith. And this is what we see in Galatians chapter 5. Here's a description of those who would be mature in the faith. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 tell us, but the fruit of the Spirit, so one is controlled by the Spirit. This is the fruit. This is, this is what would be manifest in the life of one is controlled by the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such is no law. These would be descriptive manifestation of, of the fruit of the spirit of one who was spiritual, mature in the faith. Now contrast this to the other type of believers that the Apostle Paul was talking about that would, have been prevalent, that would have been prevalent in the church of Corinth, and that is the carnal. Paul talks about the carnal, those who, who live according to the flesh. These are Christians who were immature in their faith. They were living carnally. Not that they were saved and unsaved, but there are Christians who were mature in the faith, and there are Christians who were still hanging on to the worldly, fleshly ways. We see this also in Galatians chapter 5. Look again, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, describes what would, what would be uh, uh, seen in one who is not yielding and controlled by the Holy Spirit, but immature and carnal in their faith. 519, the Galatians says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murderous, murders, uh, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul, in, in Galatians, the description there in that passage is, these are the things of the flesh, these are the things of the world, these are things that you should not be living by because you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you should be controlled by the Spirit, producing godly fruit. So back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 3, you see that Paul is speaking of, of, of the spiritual and the carnal in verse 1. He's addressing, remember, the letter is written to Christians in Corinth. He's writing to the Corinthian believers, and he says, some of you are carnal, some of you are spiritual. Both kinds of folks, listen, you need to remember this, both kinds of folks that he's writing to are saved. However, they each had different kinds of relationship and obedience to Christ. Now, when a sinner becomes a Christian, the old nature, the flesh, is 
positionally crucified. It is put to death at salvation. Amen for that. We are no longer enslaved and bound by the flesh at salvation. Is, our old flesh is rendered ultimately powerless in our lives as Christians. However, the flesh still maintains influence in the life of a believer. No longer control, but influence in the life of the believer. The influence is not removed from the Christian. Let this truth be reinforced. We get this truth from Romans. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 6 for a moment? The Apostle Paul elsewhere writes to other believers, and he writes to them speaking of this. Romans 6.11 uses this, this, uh, this interesting term here to reckon, to reckon something. Romans 6.11 says, as he's speaking to Christians, he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this interesting word reckon that I've been drawing your attention to here carries the understanding and is the meaning that we are to reckon, that is to make up our mind about something. To be convinced, to set our minds straight that yes, I now am no longer enslaved in that sin because of the death of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood on the cross. I no longer am enslaved to sin. It no longer has hold over me. I no longer sin uncontrollably. I have been freed from that. But now I've been reckoned positionally dead to sin in the flesh, I still have to be careful to be yielding to the Spirit's leading of my life so that I might say no to the old desires to go back to the flesh. And God has given us power, and God has given us victory through the Holy Spirit to succeed in that endeavor that God has for us. The Corinthian Christians had not grown up very much in regard to putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I mean, <laughs> this afternoon, go and read through 1 Corinthians and see all the things we're going to be talking about. See the way that the Corinthians were living. Maybe for some of you, you may just look inwardly at your life and how you're living and realize, yeah, <laughs> the flesh has still got a strong pull sometimes. This is how the Corinthians were living and Paul was concerned and in his love for them and, and given the words by the Holy Spirit as he pens these words to the Corinthian believers, he addresses their spiritual immaturity, that their deeds were after the flesh instead of after the Spirit, and as a result, they were found to be catering to the sinful desires of their own flesh and causing divisions and destructiveness and tearing apart the congregation and not being effective in the work of the Lord. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, just as when he was with them before, they still are unable to handle solid spiritual food. The Apostle Paul had to put it in a blender, blend it up a little bit, and let them drink it with a straw. Hopefully whole milk, not that skim nonsense stuff, right? If you can chew it, it's better. Mm. 
Milk, not steak. Milk, not the the weighty, deep matters of Scripture. Look at verse 2. It says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Just when they were brand new babes in Christ, just as when he began the ministry there with them, when it would be expected for them to be immature in Christ, now, much later, they maintained their spiritual infancy and did not demonstrate growth in the Lord. By milk, Paul is referring to the most basic principles of the gospel. The most basic principles of faith and living. We can pick up the sense of frustration here. Paul is, is having to continually go over the same basic principles with these immature Christians. I wonder what it would be like if for the next three Sundays I were to preach the same message all three Sundays in a row. Okay, you can come back. I'm not going to do that, I promise, all right? I wonder if sometimes spiritually we need that more. I wonder if sometimes we go through the motions of, I've heard that, yep, that's there, yeah, but we're not making application and purposing and committing our life for change for Christ, for growth in Him. Paul, the Apostle Paul is, 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 is surely frustrated. Here I am telling you the same old basic things again, the good things, the things you need, but you should have graduated at this point. You should have grown. You should be ready for more. I'm ready to share so much more. You know, all of my children were beautiful at birth. Excuse me, all of my children are still beautiful, okay? (laughs) Precious little babies. Don't they smell good most of the time? Do you know what I mean, though, moms, especially that little baby smell, you know, the milk and everything else, whatever whatever lotion or whatever you put on them, I don't know, they just smell good. You just want to... These cute little babies. It's fun to hold them. Little Ezra, I'm thinking of that little peanut, tiny little guy. See Pastor Chris holding his baby and Johanna, a little guy. They're so cute. You know, but there comes a time in life when babies, that human beings should not remain tiny and cute. <laughs> right? It'd be kind of awkward if a 35-year-old man goes and crawls up and sits in his dad's lap sucking his thumb, wouldn't it? Just, we just expect that we, there should be growth at that point. We ought to grow out of our stage of, of, of that infancy and that cuteness into maturity and what should be expected with age and time. This is what God expects for you. This is God's will for your life, that you are to grow in your faith, that you are to mature and to not come to a stagnant plateau in your faith. Oh, I've been in church a... Uh, 60 years, and I've heard it all. Dear brother or sister, if that is your claim, you are mistaken. We are to continually grow, and and the only way that growth comes about is by spending time in God's Word. Dear church, dear Christians, (laughs) 
It is by feeding on the Word of God that the Christian grows spiritually. And the way one feeds on the Word of God by Jesus Christ's design is being often under the preaching and the teaching, the right teaching of the Word of God. That means when there are services held, you are there. When there's a study happening, you make every effort to be part of it. When you're at home alone and leading your families or, or in your own place, you ought to be in God's Word devotionally and studying often, daily. This is how we grow. This is how we mature in the faith. God has given us the food that we need. And it, is, it leads to anemic Christianity. Ineffective churches. When people begin to shelf the food that God has given them and curb the opportunity to grow spiritually in the faith that God has designed for your life, for my life. Self-examination question should be something like this. Is my life characterized by the flesh or by the Spirit? This letter was written to you, to us, at Calvary Baptist Church. Which one of us, and no pointing or looking around, which one of us would be noted as the carnal? Those who are immature in the faith and living after the flesh or those who are spiritual, those who are maturing in the faith? Paul then reminds the Corinthians, look at verse 3. Paul then reminds the Corinthians that their present behavior shows that they were walking in the flesh. Verse 3 says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Listen, a, a Christian who is walking according to the flesh, as the Corinthians were, is one who is serving his own desires. There's a, a, a phrase that's been coined long before me by someone else. You may be familiar with it. It goes like this. Just two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God and pleasing self. It's helpful to be reminded of that. It's something that often we share and seek to instill in our children as we raise and train them. And it's true spiritually. Two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Oh, we work really good at trying to create choice three and four and five and six and the in-between choices. But there are only two. It's either pleasing God or it's pleasing self. Living according to the flesh means Self is on the throne, and Christ has been dethroned. Did you know selfishness is a primary characteristic of a fleshly life? Selfishness is a primary characteristic of a fleshly life, a life that is lived seeking after pleasing self. You see, strife occurs in the body of Christ when Christians put their own interests over the interests of others. Seeking to force your intentions and your opinions and your thoughts in a way that you're not happy until someone else is submissive to that way of thinking or accepts this idea or does what I want to do. 
this is selfish, carnal living, Paul says. And this, 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 this type of living, this type of selfish desire, it, it, it hurts people. It causes offense. It divides and curbs the, the work of Christ in the body. Romans chapter 8. Note this down, would you? Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 9. I encourage you to read that this afternoon. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9 describes the differing natures of the carnal and the spiritual. The, the one who is mature in the faith and the one who is unspiritual. Be good to read that passage. We're going to move on to, chapter, to verse 4 here in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to see lastly this morning the right cure for division. Paul's called them out. He's laid it all out. Here's what you're doing. This is the root cause of what you're doing. You're living carnally. There's divisions among the congregation, and here's what you need to do about it. Here's the right cure for this type of living. And the cure comes in twofold answer and response, and that is a correct focus that revives concord. A right action that produces a right result. So in the form of a rhetorical question, Paul exposes the the ethos, the, that's the spirit of the congregation, the, the, the way that they were of the Corinthian church. In verse 4, he says this, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another I am of Paulus, uh, Apollos, here's the question, rhetorically, he says, Are ye not carnal? He says, This is what you're saying, and you're telling me that's not a carnal way of thinking? And by now, they surely know the answer as he's been, as this letter would have been read to them. It was a very divisive spirit that, the, that those Christians had. It was that divisive spirit that proved their carnality in thinking only of themselves instead of others. Look at, look at the next several verses. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. This is the right focus. This is the right result. Paul reminded them that, it, that Apollos and himself were just servants of God and that it was God who was working through them. Dear friends, it is when we lose this focus that the church suffers. It is when we lose this focus that God no longer see, receives the glory in our ministry. The effectiveness of the Lord's ministry begins to diminish when we lose focus of this. And so, as obedient servants to the Master, we are mere instruments in His hands. Consider how much, let's go back to the plant illustration for a minute. Remember our small little plant? It's still growing. <laughs> it's getting bigger. Seasons are passing. We water it. Sunshine comes down. All the things, the oxygen, all the stuff, the, the soil, the fertilization, all the processes that go on. Consider for a moment all of the work that we do in growing a plant. Let me, let me, let me 
help you rethink that. Let's consider how little we do in growing a plant. So we might water it a little bit, might do a little pruning, might fertilize it, but all these other elements that God has created and that are of God's and that are God's process is the one that's growing that plant, isn't it? I think we need to step back sometimes and realize that we are not as great a gardeners as we think we are. It is God that provides the increase, not you and not me. We are gardeners used of Him in His garden, and we are used by Him as He finds us fit for service. What is God that does the growing? Is God who is primarily responsible for any spiritual benefit that came through the ministry of the apostles, and Paul wanted them to hear and understand this. You know, because the congregation was setting up leaders. Oh, look what they did. Oh, look what he's done. I'm a follower of him. We, servants of God, do almost nothing in comparison to the amount of work that God is responsible for in bringing a person to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's the ultimate goal in ministering, glorifying God. Seeing others turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, for saving faith in Jesus Christ, and discipling them so that they can be trained to disciple others. It's God that does the increase in this work. Would you consider for a moment here, I've heard this illustrated well to me before, this way. It helps me think this way. Picture a... Uh, an extraordinary, I don't know, whatever, the most wonderful, amazing painting that exists. We're in an art gallery. We see this beautiful painting. It's amazing. And then looking at this painting, you see it? You're looking at it. You're not sitting there thinking this. My, that paintbrush must have been amazing. Doesn't that sound kind of silly? My, that paintbrush must have been incredible. Oh, the fine hair on that paintbrush, the length of the, 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 the wooden handle of that paintbrush. I mean, I, ha, look what that paintbrush accomplished. Just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? How about this one, right? Some of us builders, we look at a, 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 an extraordinary building, a wonderful architecture done, beautiful building. Take lots of, it took lots of work. It was done by a great, renowned architect, world-renowned. World we sit there and look at it, and we go, Man alive, can you imagine the hammer it would have taken to build this building? What an incredible hammer that built this place. We can go on and on and on and on with the illustrations. But do you already see the point? You and me, as Christ's church, are but instruments. It is God that does the constructing. It is God that is to receive the glory. It is God that works in and through the instruments, that's you and me, that are fit for service, equipped for service for God's glory. Not for man's, not for the paintbrush, not for the hammer, but for the one that accomplished that work. So let's not get caught up in the instruments when God produces the results. The God-produced results are His. They're not yours. They're not mine. 
And so a corrective focus works to revive this concord, this harmony, this unity again. When we look and we have this correct focus on who has received the glory, let's finish out with verses 8 and 9. It says, And now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. What an encouragement to know that whatever part you have in the Lord's work, we've got a lot of little moving parts in this church. We have a lot of behind-the-scenes unseen laborers. We have many people that do a lot of things that are very important that may not always see public recognition for. There are a lot of things accomplished, but whatever part you have, if you think you just do some tiny part or you don't think you're doing enough, there's some encouragement in this passage here in verses 8 and 9. Whatever part you have in the Lord's work, each will receive their own reward. Oh, we'll, be, we'll be judged for what we have done and what we, what we have not done in this life, but each will receive their own reward. You see, the, the factions, the disunity, the division within the church were utterly ridiculous. They were silly. They did not need to take place. They were all serving the same God. They were on the same team working towards the same goal of seeing God glorified, not man, working together as one body. So let's not get caught up in the instruments when God is the one who produces the results. We are, in fact, laborers together with God. So implied is that Paul, Apollos, as well as the Corinthian believers, were all on the same team, working for the same goals, what they ought have, should have been. We should be pulling together rather than fighting with each other. God uses us to make things happen in His church. God uses us as His instruments, His tools. We do different things, but God makes it successful. It is God that produces the fruit. So our focus should be that of serving God. Remember the united effort climbing up to Mount Everest? Remember Sir Edmund Hillary? The one from Britain, the one standing on top of Everest, holding the camera, taking a picture of the Sherpa guide. The one that was there to only help him get there. And yet when asked, it was noted, it was a united effort. It doesn't matter who was there first. We did this as a team. We've seen the root cause for division. What was it? Carnality and immaturity. It is these things that effectively work to tear apart a church. So the right cure for division is correct focus, which works to revive concord or harmony in the congregation. Let me ask you this. Real time, real talk here. You ready? The rest is all real too. (laughs) We're going to get really real in life. Would you be willing, would you consider this morning individually but corporately together would each one of you be willing 
to commit this morning to a harmonious focus of seeing the church grow and bear fruit as we work together in harmony. Each one of us needs the other in order to fulfill God's purpose. That's the way the Lord has uniquely set up and divinely set up the church to function. Serving together on the same team well means not fighting over position. Not fighting for um, uh, claim to results. Not fighting over who has ability and who doesn't. John the Baptist said of Jesus in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Finally, if you have not acknowledged your sin and need for salvation this morning, then you are not part of the team. But God offers the answer for that through the provision of His Son, Jesus Christ, and salvation that's received by God's grace through faith in that work for the forgiveness of your sin, you can be part of God's family. You can be forgiven, know that your eternal state will forever be in the presence of God and be secure and irreversible if one simply turns from sin and repentance, acknowledging Christ as personal Savior and the one who alone offers the forgiveness of sin. You can be part of the family of God this morning and unite in the united effort of glory to God. Father, as we close this morning, this portion of the service, we thank you for the reminder, a sobering reminder of our responsibility as a church. Lord, thank you for equipping us with tools, and I thank you for this congregation, for their love for you, for their desire to serve you. We give you praise for the way that a number of ministries have worked well, how, how you have produced fruit through this ministry, and we are even seeing the increase of that in this congregation to this day. Lord, help us to remain focused on you receiving the glory, living lives as Christians, yielding to the Spirit's leading, and emboldening and empowering us, equipping us for service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.